Welcome to Open Swim with your host, Hallie Bram Kogelschatz. Eric Kogelschatz. And Brian Andrew Jasinski. So you guys just returned from the 2019 AIGA National Conference out in California. So I'm excited to hear a little bit about what you learned, things that it made you think and feel, and some of the trends that you want to share with everyone listening. First and foremost, how was California? <laughs> it was awesome. Yeah. You guys have a good time. Definitely, yeah. So it was in Pasadena, California. I've never been, as Eric has never been as well. We've both been to LA, but um, Pasadena was a really fascinating area. It reminded us actually of some parts of our hometown of Cleveland, some really beautiful old architecture and and older districts that have been reinvented and and brought to uh, a new era, if you will. So we were really fascinated with all the uh, um, small businesses and the way that the um, they're mixed with uh, bigger brands. So that was uh, something we really took note of while we were down there. So there's definitely a rich sense of um, design and, and retail down there. And we even went out a day early so that we could spend the day at the Getty and just kind of explore the museum. And it's a, such a beautiful, inspiring place. Which I, yeah, I had never been to before. And I believe... Gosh, we were there for almost two hours, and we had completed a total of one building. Yeah. <laughs> and so it really made me really realize I need to build a trip around just going to the Getty because um, I was just completely floored by the architecture and then the collections within it. So really you guys really had an immersive art and design experience out in SoCal, huh? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Definitely. From Venice Beach to the Getty, it was quite a range <laughs> of a day. <laughs> so, for sure. And then yeah. our last day was at the Arts District. Exactly, in L.A. And that was a, another really beautiful experience. You know, just this really vibrant Arts District uh, within uh, what was once a very dense industrial area. And uh, kitchen gardens and, and restaurants and galleries and again independent shops and pop-ups what I was really struck by too in LA and Pasadena was all the really incredible public art both commissioned and then also on the bridges and just on walls so interesting uh, different varying levels of art uh, interpretations so it sounds like you guys had a really good time out there but let's get into what you actually experienced at the conference talk to me about some of the things that really made an impression upon you for me personally I had attended the AIGA conference this was my third but it had been quite a while I attended in Vancouver way back in 2003 and in Boston in 2005 I'll be completely honest that those initial two that I went to I remember leaving feeling not as inspired as I'd hoped to be. What I was really struck by with this conference, as opposed to the two that I had gone to a good 15 plus years ago, was I remember leaving those feelings a little almost disappointed because, you know, you're going to this design conference, it's the AIGA, and those were very much focused on a, a very commercial slant to them as well as environmental impact of what we as designers are doing. Whereas this one definitely still incorporated the importance of the impact of design, our footprint on the environment as and our responsibility as designers. But they also talked about the social importance of what we do, um, both for clients as well as for the greater community. They spoke to the idea of design for good and a lot of conversation around the importance of relationships. So I I definitely feel like as, you know, everybody's, as we're in this very digital world, um, which was, you know, obviously we're much more immersed in this digital culture than we were 15 plus years ago. It was about that idea of making connections, not only with our clients, but with the audiences for whom we're designing. So there is much more of a soul to, to this particular conference that I picked up on as opposed to the past. 
and what, definitely left feeling inspired. What about you, Eric? I know this is your first time attending AIGA's conference, but you've been to many others. You know, what were some of the things that made an impression upon you? As a curator of large-scale events, I was really impressed with how they ran the event. It was it was really impressive, just the the stage design, but then also their format. They definitely took from the current zeitgeist of and popularity around podcasts and had that structure for a lot of the introductions for the speakers. So that was a really interesting way to set up the the sessions. But I, th- I really enjoyed it. It was my first time, and I really thought there were different topics and many we'll probably talk about today. For me, the, f- the first day, we immediately started talking about this idea of the reemergence of creativity in the digital age. And that really spoke to me because when I started to learn how to code, it was, it was this idea of looking at what other people were doing, copying it, modifying it, trying to see how I could create something similar that they were doing. And the speaker, Anil Dash, was talking about how We've lost that sense of creativity from the the beginning days of the internet because that's when people were creating everything. They were creating their GeoCity websites, you name it. Everything was custom built for them. And that went away when you have now Facebook that has a standardized format for their pages and you have to work within those parameters so that creativity has been lost. Um, However, while he spoke, all I could think about was now we are seeing that creativity come back with platforms like Instagram and the stories that they offer. You're seeing more people modify their content and create it so that it's built for them or designed in their aesthetic. Obviously the the quality and standards are definitely a question there. So I do think we're seeing that creativity come back into the internet and what people are experiencing and creating content online. Probably the other thing to mention here is that with the with the um, platforms evolution themselves. I think Instagram is a perfect example where when they were born, so to speak, it was a feed, but now it's a feed and it's stories and it's IGTV and it's sponsored posts within IGTV and it's or sponsored stories within IGTV. And then, you know, there's other opportunity to create content. And I think it's forcing people to not just be creative, obviously, in the sense of what pieces of content are you putting out there, but truly thinking about platform-based campaigns. So even within one platform, how are you getting people to watch your IGTV you know, channel? How are you getting them there? How do they know about it? And really using all of your touch points to drive people there if that's your end goal. Um, and so, you know, I think it's I, truly, I think it's an opportunity, but I think it's a major challenge for, for clients. I mean, we just stepped out of a client meeting where, you know, we were presenting a trend presentation about what's happening on all these platforms and, you know, what, you know, how people are using the platforms and, you know, where they are, where the shifts are happening, where the trend lines are. And um, it's a lot to take in because, you know, with the shifting not just demographics um, of the user, but also the ways in which they want to consume content on these channels. Um, it can be, you know, really daunting, you know, particularly with the rise of video and the platform's abilities to support both long and short format video. Um, a lot of marketers are thinking about it as far as, you know, even a platform specific campaign could take up, you know, a huge portion of our team's time and, you know, and, and they may not have the dollars to outsource all of that. And so, Again, you know, I think it presents a lot of opportunity for creativity um, in terms of traditional design, but maybe even more so creativity in the way that you think about what works and what's the reason to use these these channels. Um, how do we make sure that we're not just screaming in an empty room? And I think that's what's important to consider with um, as these platforms begin to offer more and more assets is what is applicable to that particular 
client and their needs, not just plugging them into a certain platform because that's what everyone else is doing because these, uh, all these different uh, virtual rooms, if you will, aren't designed for everybody and aren't um, going to be beneficial to every situation. And it's, I, I do think there's brands out there that are tapping into each of these different platforms just for the sake of, of saying that they were there you know, of, of marking that territory, but it's not always successful because it, it just naturally isn't brand appropriate or voice appropriate. And I do think that's what's important to us in terms of what we do as ambassadors for our clients is to make sure that those recommendations of these platforms are, are appropriate to their vision and their voice. Another thing that, you know, we talk a lot about with clients when it comes to this type of creativity is that, you know, there are places within the campaign, you know, on these social platforms to allow for what we describe as high fidelity and low fidelity content. And so, you know, when it comes to being creative in the sense of, you know, how do I use my my budget? How do I use my resources? Um, that's where I think, you know, an agency like ours has the ability to come in and add a lot of value because we can come in with that creative thought um, and also be creative in the way that you're, you know, using everything at your disposal while, you know, maximizing your budget. And so I think that's where, you know, clients should lean on their agency partners to help them kind of figure out this changing landscape and get creative and figure out, you know, like what's really going to make the biggest impact for our brand. Another issue that, you know, this was brought up at the conference and it's something that we deal with on a day to day basis is the quality of design that's being put out there. Um you know, many more people now have keys to the car, if you will, in terms of content creation and the ability to channel that content. And, you know, I think it's the age old, you know, struggle that one could have of, of, I, I struggle to use the word control, but having that quality control that, you know, when you are creating a brand for client or be it perpetuating a brand for client, making sure that what is being put out there is in tandem with the overall plan. I think what you're describing is this idea that even though we may be crafting the overall visual language for a client's campaign, there are going to be instances in which there is an in-house designer or an in-house resource. They're going to have to be creating certain tactics that dovetail in with the overall campaign. But how do we make sure that there is that quality and it all feels like it's singing from the same song sheet? I think that's where we've run into um, issues when you try and segment the creative responsibilities between agency and client, you know, is, you know, what types of things can be handled at a low fidelity level and what types of tools do we as an agency owe it to our clients to develop so that we don't get into situations where, you know, you have this very high quality work out of one place and then maybe something that just doesn't look quite as premium coming out of another place or, you know, frankly, doesn't look brand bright. So, you know, I think that's the challenge, right, is just because you have a tool um, it doesn't mean that you're a designer. And I think that's a, you know, uh, just to be completely candid, I think that's a frustration for um, any agency, anybody, um, you know, who works in a creative field is, you know, I think that there are a lot of people out there that, oh, well, I have, you know, a copy of Photoshop and I have access to Photoshop. So mm -hmm. I'm a designer now and I can do things. And, you know, that's just not the case, you know, and I, I think that there's something to be said for creativity in the in the sense that it is a framework as much as it is a manipulation of tools certainly and it also adds a new layer of client communications and quite frankly client delicacies that you have to deal with because it's making sure that you are for lack of a better term policing those uh, the assets that are, are perhaps not being created under your creative 
guidance and making sure that those conversations are understood and and why certain um, tactics need to be executed and and why how why certain others should not be used absolutely and i you know i think it does you know create new opportunities however for agencies to support their clients because there may be certain items that you want to see templatized such as their email marketing Um, You know, maybe there's a series of templates that gets created so that you make sure that whatever's happening within that marketing system sphere is mapping to what's happening, say, at a brand level. And a lot of these self-service tools that were created were developed for the purpose of self-expression. And, and, you know, going back to the topic of the reemergence of creativity in the digital age, that's what made it possible. People can use these tools to express themselves through creativity online applying that to commercial settings where the quality level is paramount, that's that's the concern. So as the brand continues to evolve, having a sound design system will help the client evolve that brand, but they need to know that at certain points, if they go outside of those parameters, they will need assistance. And that's when they can turn to their partners to do that. Again, really unique set of circumstances, but I think that it presents new opportunities for firms to really add value and for clients to know that, you know, you're going to have situations where, you know, yes, you can in-house certain items, um, but, you know, where are the compromises that you will make if you take too much in-house and where can an agency really be valuable to you? And that allows them to be much more in control of their budgets and um, really feel empowered to do certain things in-house while making sure they have the right support to, to do what they need to do to move their brands forward. On the idea of design systems, in one of the sessions I attended, they talked about having these design kits that evolve over, over time, like I mentioned earlier. And as I sat in that session, I thought about the idea that research needs to be integrated into that design kit so that as the design aesthetic and system evolves, so it is driven by the consumer insight of that audience as they evolve as well. So that's something that a lot of brands need to start thinking about is how can we have research involved at every step of the way without launching these expensive large research studies that would take so much time and money. Let me ask you a question, Eric. When you say a design kit, can you describe what that means? The the system iconography, the, the typefaces. From a digital perspective, when you think about UX, it's thinking about the, the, the buttons, the interface, just that whole UI design and having that kit that's available. So that will modify slightly with compliance reasons, user expectations. And as those evolve, we just need to make sure that we have the insights mm-hmm. there as well absolutely with the idea that you know much like we said the design assets are never green that research is going to change in, in particular and as it should you know you're hoping that once that those design systems you created are published to the world and, and the public that the response to that organization or that company evolve and change and so therefore you need that research to be checking in in a sense, to see you know what is working, what is not working, and, and what needs to continue to elevate um, in terms of that within that system to keep the um, progress moving in a in a forward motion. There was a period when a lot of people were creating buttons for websites that were just outlines, not solid colors, and it was very popular. But what we found through research is that users are not able to see that because it has that transparent background, so they can't read the button. So having that insight allows them to evolve their design kit as well. So there's other scenarios out there that we don't even know about that if we can integrate that insight along the way, we'll be able to modify our approach. 
So one of the things that you guys came back to the office with was how do you design with disability in mind? Right before the conference, there was news around a legal battle that Domino's was in. A blind person sued Domino's because their mobile app was not built for them so that they'd be able to order a pizza. This individual's argument was that Domino's digital tools had to be in compliance with the web content accessibility guidelines. In the lower courts, they actually disagreed with this individual, but then when he went to appeals, they actually agreed. And they said that it was because Domino's restaurants are places of public accommodation, and the website and app are extensions of these restaurants. So they had to go back and update their their website and mobile app. This is an example of what we heard at the AIG conference, is that when Domino's built these digital experiences, they did not think about the users that it could potentially be providing that experience for. If they would have conducted qualitative studies, user testing, they would have had those answers right away. Of course, if they would have also just followed compliance test lists, they would have met these guidelines. But I argue that if they would have just involved the user in the process, they would have had a better tool, better experience, and better product for all users, regardless of whether they have disabilities or not. Some things that we can take away from that is that A, research is important, B, there are compliance issues that you probably should familiarize yourself with, and not necessarily that that should lead the creative process, but it really should be something that's thought through at some point before you actually even go into user testing. Have we complied? How are we letting this list you know, influence the way that we still maintain the creativity of the campaign, but allow for that campaign to perform best, as you say, for all users? Because that list has been developed based on research as well. And so I would look at it as an asset, you know, for marketers rather than, you know, sort of like a to-do list, you know, that should be stifling your creativity. I think there are ways in which you can kind of use it to innovate within the box, if you will, um, and use it to inform how do we make sure that we're adhering to best practices. And then, you know, it seems like beyond that, really going through that user testing and bringing in the human element and letting, you know, different types of consumers tell you, yes, you know, you, you may unearth pain points that are outside of what's present in the list that you weren't even aware of. So it always helps to have you know, that research. And I, I feel like this is another example of what's old is new again. You know, research is not, nothing new in our business. I think for a while, you know, research took a very formulaic approach. And I think marketers, at least the ones that are doing it well, are getting back to this way of operating in which they're kind of using it as part of the creative process, you know, and they're thinking about, you know, employing research in very um, divergent ways um, to make sure that, you know, they're really doing the best that they can for everyone included in the target audience, or at least to the best of their ability. As we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, all these expanded platforms. So with each expansion brings new compatibility uh, testing needs, you know, to make sure that that ex- user experience for all is is there. So I know one of the things that you came back from the conference talking about was the fact that there was a question raised around why the business world needs design. And it sounds like that's been something you've been mulling over since your return. And I know that um, the two of you have been doing your own independent research around this topic and thinking around this topic. What are some of the reasons that you came up with? Yeah, this topic first grabbed my attention when I attended the MIT MTech conference. There were several large corporations that spoke and they discussed the partnerships that they had with different startups and how that has allowed them to integrate more innovative thinking and processes into their work. So it all kind of came back to this idea of design thinking and how it's utilized 
again, we talked about it earlier with research and having empathy. But I, I think from the conference overall, there were three main things that we learned that really supports this need for design in business. Number one is impact. So design can be that tactical driver at the product level. Then as system innovation to evolve your services and then a catalyst for transformation at the experience level. If you have a, if you're a retailer, you can think about it in your retail environment. So that's one area there, just impact. And then two is partnerships. Corporations need to partner with more educational institutions. They need to partner with startups. Instead of thinking about just buying them so they can steal ideas, partner with them and allow that creative friction to take place so that you can learn from each other and, and bring in the right consultancies to make sure that you're sharing that knowledge across multiple industries, subject matter experts, just really bringing all that into how you apply your thinking and strategic development. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about that because there's a lot of conversation right now around, you know, as there is always about the economy and, you know, what's happening in the economy and a, and a trend that over time, obviously, we're aware of is in any economic downturn, clients tend to go to this place of wanting to in-house as much as possible. And frankly, I think that that's the instinct that, you know, innovative CEOs need to fight. Where great ideas come from is having that creative friction. And if you have, you know, a team in-house, you know, and all your, you know, kind of ideas are coming from this place of, you know, kind of this in inward facing a strategy, if you have the right outside forces, whether it be, like you say, a consultancy or a startup or whomever it is, where you're able to really challenge ideas and come at it from different angles, I think that that's going to allow you to not just ride the wave of, you know, economic slumps, but also think about, you know, how do we innovate? So like the next time one of these comes around, we're in better market position. Um, and how do we make our business more defensible is certainly a challenge for any business's CEO or leadership. Um, but if, if you can find those right partners, it's a better way to ensure long-term success rather than trading that for short-term gains. It comes down to the idea, too, of with clients being prescriptive. And, you know, for example, you know, Hallie, you were just saying, you know, should there be an economic downturn? So instead of being reactive when something like that were to happen, you're being more preemptive and mm -hmm. um, taking more of a participatory approach, you know, like let's create a solid plan, a, a solid strategy rather than uh, the idea of, you know, quote unquote, catching the falling pieces <laughs> as mm -hmm. it happens, you know, so um, I think that's, truly comes back down to what we've been talking about this whole episode is you know why is the power of design and why is why do businesses need design and I think that's an excellent example of the natural uh, strength and bond of the idea of you know what Ed Sharkamino we believe in is strategy and design you know those two things coming together for lack of a better term once again like in good times and in bad you know um, but having that ability to um, I don't want to say forecast, but, you know, have that that thinking uh, in terms of, OK, how can this work in this situation? Maybe not even, a you know, an economic downturn, but, for example, organizations change, they shift, there's new situations, staff changes that may happen. Um, there may be, you know, there may be controversies that a, a, a company is dealing with. There may be um, some other sort of, I don't want to always say negative because perhaps there's some sort of growth that that company is experiencing or a new product that they're launching. So it is that ability for us as strategists and designers to be nimble, you know, have that strategy, have that plan, but also understand that it's, it's not a locked 
a trajectory. You know, it's not like you're on a roller coaster where it's there's a track and you get from A to B. It's that ability to navigate um, outside of the the path when needed. But and it goes back to what Eric was saying with research throughout the pro- process, making sure that you're staying um, on that on the the right path without being locked into the track, if you will. All of these ideas really come down to the idea of innovation and in terms of that collaboration with your client. But there's also the idea of the emotional connection you know, that you're going to have uh, with your audience or with your client or creating that emotion that your client's going to have with their audience. Um, and, you know, for example, with larger brands, there's very much that idea of feeling inclusive and feeling almost as you're part of a a club in a sense you know what brand do you identify with and what is that uh, what does that brand identity say about you say about your personality about your beliefs be it political or your style or your views on the world these organizations or these companies with whom you choose to align yourself it's 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 become much more of a personal choice because of uh, in this world of social media you're you're constantly putting out there what you're wearing or or where you you know who you're endorsing what or uh, establishment you may be patronizing um, it it really comes down to that emotional connection you know you you are declaring your allegiance in a sense to that these organizations these products Absolutely. As we've discussed before, you know, it's the idea that every dollar you spend is not just a dollar. It's no longer transactional. It's really a vote for more of that thing. So whatever that thing is you're voting for, whether it be, you know, sustainable business practices, you know, in manufacturing or um, transparency in food creation, you know, in terms of ingredients and whatnot, you know, it really becomes more than just that item you're putting in your car. This episode, My Bigger Boat, goes out to Bobby Solomon, a.k.a. The Fox is Black. I've been following Bobby online for several years. He's a designer in the L.A. area. And when I realized that the AIGA conference was in L.A. this year, I wanted to reach out to him to get his short list and all the things to do in L.A. And he gave us a great list, Hauser and Worth, Manuela, Babel, and more. And we really appreciate all of his recommendations that made our trip such a great time. If you want to see some of Bobby's work, go to thefoxisblack.com. As I mentioned at the beginning of today's podcast, Eric and I were very much impressed and and took to the downtown Los Angeles Arts District. In particular, the centerpiece is the Hauser and Worth building. It, it's occupying a former flour mill, and it's truly this communal, vibrant space that links art and architecture with dynamic events. The Hauser and Worth building received the Los Angeles Conservancy's highest honor, which is the Chair Award, that, which recognizes the importance of preserving historic landmarks that make Los Angeles unique. And it was truly impressed upon Eric and I that there is a lot of love and attention and importance put on the arts in this very vibrant city. So therefore, that is why the Hauser and Worth building is My Bigger Boat. This episode, My Bigger Boat, goes to three of our clients. 
who we're proud to say were awarded the Compass Award by the Transportation Marketing and Sales Association. So my bigger book goes out to Milestone, the Port of Cleveland, and the Great Lakes Seaway Partnership. Congratulations on your winning of these awards, and we are so proud to be your consultancy and to be able to craft strategic work um, and beautiful design for you that works, and we love sharing in the success with you. This episode of Open Swim is in support of our friends at AIGA, the Professional Association for Design. AIGA brings design to the world and the world to designers. As the profession's oldest and largest professional membership organization for design, we advance design as a professional craft, strategic advantage, and vital cultural force. Learn more at AIGA.org. Open Swim is brought to you by Shark and Minnow on the web at sharkandminnow.com. On Twitter and Instagram, we are at Shark and Minnow. Technical support and audio production by Eugene Bueller. HR oversight by Marsha Ciccone. Fashion policing by Felicia Winfrey.